How many of you have heard of the book True Discipleship by Bill McDonald? Ever heard of that book? That's a, that's a worthy book to read. But this is a quote from that book. The Lord Jesus never tried to coax men into a glib profession of faith. Neither did He seek to attract a large following by preaching a popular message. In fact, whenever people began to swarm after Him, He would turn to them and sift them by setting forth the sternest terms of discipleship. That's a quote by Bill McDonald. And that's what we have here in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. It says, There went great multitudes with Him, and He turned and said unto them. And in this passage of Scripture, you're going to find this phrase three times. Cannot be my disciple. That is an astonishing thing to say to a group of people that is following you. You cannot be my disciple. So we want to look at that. If that's the case, we need to look at that and examine that a little bit. Another phrase that we find in the New Testament is, so shall ye be my disciples. So we're going to look at, ye cannot be, and we're going to look at, so shall ye be my disciples. And then to finish up with, it is enough for the disciple. So here in Luke chapter 14, there's this great multitude that has begun to follow Him and He turns to them and He says, If any man come to Me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be My disciple." That is an amazing thing that Jesus has just said. And really what it boils down to is that that Jesus wants to be first and best and tops. If He's going to be Lord at all, He wants to be Lord of all. That's just the way it is with Jesus. He He isn't going to take anything... If I'm going to be His disciple, I can't say, yes, but Daddy says. And that's really what He's dealing with, I think, in this passage. Is we're just going to have to leave all that behind if we're going to be Jesus' disciples. That doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't obey our parents at all. I think that's obvious to this group here. But this is what he's saying. We can't have anybody in our lives that means more to us than Jesus or that we will go to and say, Jesus said this, what do you think? Or anything like that. That's, that's really what it comes to. It, it has to do with our relationships. Our relationships with people that, are, that we would normally think would be appropriate to be very close to. But it also has to do with teachers and instructors if you're in college or peers, people that you work with. It doesn't matter what they say. That's what Jesus is telling us here. If you're going to be my disciple, it doesn't matter what they say. What matters is what I say. And if you're not ready for that kind of commitment, and if you're not ready to break all ties with anything you've ever heard or learned that goes contrary to the Gospel, 
then you're not ready to be my disciple. So that's the first term of discipleship. And it goes even beyond that. It's not just other people. It's our own ideas and opinions. It talks in Revelations 12 about a group of people that loved not their own lives, even unto the death. So Jesus is calling a group of people here tonight to be the kind of disciples that are willing to be His disciples even if it costs us our lives. That's what He's saying. If you're not ready to, to lay down your life as a follower of Jesus, then maybe you're not quite ready to be one of My disciples. That's how stern the terms of discipleship are. The next verse says, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And there's been a lot of things that have been shared on this verse, cross-bearing and what does it mean. And I don't have anything new or different. It's, it's the same message that you've been hearing about discipleship. If you're not ready to bear your cross, you're maybe not ready to be Jesus' disciple. So what is the cross? And to me, I guess it just looks like what I'm, I'm willing to lay down my rights, my personal rights, anything that, that the Constitution or, or whatever would tell me I have the right to, I'm willing to lay that down and take up my cross and go after Jesus and ask Him, where do you live? I want to abide there with you. So the cross for the disciple is that which comes as a result of obedience to Christ. And I think the reason I put that in there in, in this outline is because too many times I've heard people talk about some physical malady as the, their particular cross to bear. And that is the curse, not the cross. And I want us to get that clear. There's a big difference between what is the curse and what is the cross. Because the cross is a choice. The curse, if I've got a gimpy leg, I can't just decide, well, I'm not going to deal with my gimpy leg today. I'm just going to leave that behind. But the cross is always something that I must choose to go back there and face that difficult relationship. I've got to go back there and, and take that cross up again and just keep following Jesus in that circumstance, in that relationship, in that whatever it is. A couple examples I want to give just for to help us understand what is this thing of taking up the cross, you turn to Hebrews 11 and read a little bit about Moses. To me, he seems to be a good example for tonight of someone who took up his cross. In verse 23 it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So here it is. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He took up his cross. 
and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose a different identity. He refused that identity. And that was a cross for him. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He took up his cross and he said, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of sin. It was all at his disposal. He could have had anything and everything. But he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. And that's, that's a good picture of cross-bearing. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. That means is that he saw all those treasures in Egypt and he said, that's nothing to what I can have if I will take up my cross and follow Jesus. It was a matter of priority. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing Him who is invisible. And that's how any of us are going to endure if we are going to take up our cross and follow after Jesus by seeing Him who is invisible. Obviously, Jesus is the best example of cross-bearing. He is the best example of someone who... in was willing to obey his father and died on a cross. That's what it looked like for him. To obey meant that he died on a cross. And then to pursue, to come after. It's, it's more than just this thing, this cross, this thing that, that I must endure. It's about being with Him and following Him and seeking to know Him. and That's really what it's all about. And somehow in the mystery of the way God works in every one of our lives, we can all testify that we learn to know God better in difficult times than we ever do in success or when things are going well. I forget how Marshall says it exactly. God whispers in our pleasure... He speaks to us in something and He shouts in our pain. God shouts to us in our pain. So it's about taking up our cross. I guess it would be about laying down my rights, taking up my cross, obeying Him, and following Him to know Him better. And if we're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to take up your cross tonight, today, this week, then maybe you're not ready to be His disciple. And He didn't say it that way. He said, you cannot be My disciple. You're not ready. You're not ready. The next thing that follows is a little story. But I'm going to read verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, he cannot be My disciple. So now we're getting down to where we have to forsake everything we have to be His disciple. And if we're not ready for that, we're not ready to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Let's read this account here. For which of you, because again in, in verse 33 it says, So likewise. 
So that's his summary of these stories that he tells. He says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. If you've ever traveled to China, these things dot the horizon. These things, these large concrete and rebar structures everywhere that somebody started, and whether they were able or just lost the vision somehow, they're everywhere. Things that people started and didn't finish. And it's not just in China. I've included in these notes a story, and I'm not going to read it for you. It's about a cathedral that somebody started, some great vision, and it stands there today. It was started in like um, 1339, 1348, whatever it was. 1339, and it's still there today as a monument of failure. They didn't, they never did finish it. So people start great things, and I think what's what we're talking about is investment. If you're not willing to forsake everything for this cause then you're not ready to be my disciple. Now, those people who built that tower and those people who start these concrete structures and whatever it is, they probably did think they had enough to finish. But if they were holding back something and didn't finish, that's where the big disconnect would be. And that's what I'm calling us to, or I think the Word of God is calling us to, is if you're holding anything back in this relationship of discipleship, then you're not ready. You can't hold back and build a monumental edifice, something that people are going to remember a long time. You invest everything in that. You pour your whole life savings and all your reserves, and you may even borrow money against the future, to build something great so that people remember you. You don't hold back. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. We can't afford to hold back. What king going to make a war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador an ambassage and desires conditions of peace, it would not be acceptable or even tolerated if a king held back and allowed his city to be wiped out because he just didn't think he should invest everything he had in this campaign. That's, I think, what is being taught here. It, kings don't hold back when they're going to war, whether it's an exploit or their own protection, defending their citizens, they don't hold back. You can't afford to hold back. And in this war, in this discipleship, Jesus says you can't hold anything back. But I want to ask you, is there any price too high to pay? Are there prices that are too high to pay? I just got done saying you can't hold anything back. How many of you have heard of a Puric victory? King Purus. 
something else I learned from Brother Marshall. The Purik victory. King Purus was a, a king. He lived, I think it was in the 280s, somewhere in there. Not sure if it was B.C. or A.D., so you can check that out. But anyway, he had a, an army, and he was going up against Rome, which was a big undertaking for a guy like Purus. But he left his own country and went out conquest of some other area. And he won. He won two great victories against Rome, which was a significant thing. And as his friends came to congratulate him and his victories, he said, Two more such vic- or one more such victory and I come back to Epirus alone. He said, I can't afford any more victories if that's what victory is going to cost me. And what that word, that phrase has come to mean, and it's not obviously not conversant or it's not vernacular because nobody here has ever heard of it. Perfect victory just means that the price that you had to pay exceeded the value of what you what you got. You had to pay too high a price for what you got. You can't afford to pay that much. And we run into it all the time in in the work that I'm in in construction. If it takes a guy 10 hours to run this baseboard in here, we've just had a perfect victory. Because it may be perfect, but we can't afford to have any more perfection. We just can't afford it. And so what I'm getting at is there are prices too high to pay. It's too high a price to pay to um, betray your brother That's what I mean by a house divided. It's too high a price to pay to betray your brother in order to win somebody to Christ. We've just had a perfect victory. We can't afford any more victories like that. Or, I guess you could, you could fill in the blank, but what I want us to see is that any time the house is divided... Anytime our interests are divided, the invest, we better not invest there. If I have to give up something that God has give, made me a steward of in order to do this other thing, whatever it is, then that's a divided house. A house divided against itself will fall. So I just wanted to put that in the whole equation in this investment thing. So, one thing that Jesus is not saying is whenever he says, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he has, he cannot be my disciple. And whenever he calls us to count the cost of discipleship, he is not saying, do you have what it takes to do what someone else has done? Or to be what somebody else is. I can't stand up here and be Eric Metaxas. That's just not me. Maybe you don't know who Eric Metaxas is. I didn't either till a week ago. But anyway, I've got to be who I am and count that cost and, and be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You can't. That's not what Jesus is saying, and I want to make that clear here. 
When you're counting the cost of discipleship, he's, it's, it's Jesus we're following. It's Jesus we're imitating, not somebody else who we may think is a very good Christian, somebody worthy to be admired, but it's Jesus that we are following. It's Jesus that we are, are going to lay down our lives for. So this is interesting to me. In the first couple of verses of chapter 15, to contrast them with where we started in chapter 14, verse 25. We started out with these great multitudes who went with him, and he turned and he sifted them. And then in 15:1 it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So what's happening here? I don't know what all is happening, but one of the things that I think is happening is he has just given these people a really hard task to take, and some people didn't pass. Why do you think it is that the scribes murmured? Well, they weren't willing to honor Jesus Christ above every other person and every other relationship. They weren't willing to lay down their rights to whatever they thought they had a right to and come and be an humble disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just weren't ready for that. They weren't willing. And that's why they start this thing of murmuring and finding reasons to justify their consciences. And they just weren't ready to pay the price, to count the cost, to lay it all down and go all the way with Jesus. So, Jesus says to them and, and us today, if you're not ready, then you cannot be my disciple. So let's look at these other verses that says, so shall ye be my disciples. The first one is in John chapter 8, verse 21. It's a familiar one. It says, now did I write the reference wrong? I did. It's not verse 21. Is it 31? The one I'm thinking of. Thank you. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is one of those, if you want to be one of my disciples, then continue in my word. That's what's going to make the difference. That's what's going to set you apart. And you're going to be a follower of me. It means he's calling us to continue in the word, not just an hour a day even. It means to let it change my life, to continue in it. So let's flip over real quick to Second Peter chapter two. No, Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen. And we're going to listen to the Apostle Peter as he talks to us about this word of God. Because he was one of them there that heard Jesus say to continue in my word. So let's hear what he has to say about it. He says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So he's what he's doing is he's, he's reminding these people that I had a really amazing experience on a mountaintop a couple of years ago and I heard God speak from heaven and there was a cloud there. I mean, he doesn't go into the details, but he just let, he reminds us of the event and we can put fill in the rest. He's saying, this is real. This happened to me. I was up there on the mountain and I heard the voice that said, this is my beloved son. Okay? So that's what he's, he's got that over here. And then he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Because I guarantee you there are hundreds of people out there that want to tell you about their experience. Oh yeah, I had this great experience. In fact, there's a whole cult built on personal experience and they will invite you. They'll give you a little book. Most of the time it's blue. And they'll say, take this and read it and pray and ask God to reveal to you whether this is true or not. It's completely subjective. It's, it's my own experience. It's disconnected from objective revelation which we have right here in the Word of God. That's, that's, what, hap- that's what the Mormons will do repeatedly. And, and that their whole system is built on experience and my subjective experience. But it's not just them. And that's why I'm bringing it up. If we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we're going to continue in the Word. We're not going to rely on an experience that we had, albeit it may be great and it may very much encourage our hearts in the Lord. He was encouraged by this. He used it to testify that this was real. But he said, we've got something better than that. We have something better than an experience on a mountaintop and clouds and voices and things. We've got the Word of God. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This Word of God which we have is very sure. And it lives and abides forever, it says in the first chapter of First Peter. So we're talking about objective truth versus what is sensational. And I, I, it's just sobering to me how swiftly our generation is running towards what is sensational. If it's sensational, then it must be true. And it's rampant. Our, our generation is addicted to entertainment. And if you're not entertaining, then we don't want to listen to you. And that reminds me of a scripture about having itching ears and, and wanting to heap to themselves teachers. But that's, that's where we're at. And I want to read to you this quote I found in the Brian Call here. 
I think it was Saturday. Um, the Brian Call, how many of you have heard of that? It's an interesting periodical that just calls out to us to, to be true disciples of the Lord Jesus. T.A. McMahon wrote this, and it says, Young evangelicals who are involved in ministry tell me that the increasing state of easy access to information through the Internet, e.g. Facebook, Twitter, and various blogs and apps, has compounded the difficulty of encouraging their peers to study the Bible in depth. What's more, it reinforces their appetite for instant gratification. That's comparable to some in my generation who were of the mentality, why read the book when you can read the Cliff's Notes version? only on steroids. It's also been noted that such believers are aware that they are seriously deficient in understanding the Scriptures, which has led to other problems. They are easily intimidated by those who tell them to leave the Bible answers to scholars and experts, and they tend to seek out the latest Christian books for enlightenment rather than gleaning insights from the Bible itself. Once again, all of this makes them ripe for deception. So that's, that's pretty real. Just how easy it is to, to Google something. And I, one thing I think that, that it's easy for us to do is we would rather find an interesting anecdote or an illustration than to study what the Word of God really is teaching. It's important to be able to, to explain what you... What, the Bible is teaching, but to be able to have the greatest anecdote, and I fell for that. I've got books on my shelf. The only reason they're there is because I got them because I thought they would have interesting anecdotes. Do you have a question? Five minutes. Thank you. So, John 13.35 says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This stands in contrast to the one that we came across in Luke 14.26. says, if you hate not. And so you can do your homework on that. But I want to ask you something. And I want you to think about the next time you tell somebody you love them. What do you mean when you say, I love you? Like, like if I was to tell Anthony, I love you, brother. What do I mean by that? Is that just warm feelings? Sometimes after we've had a, a special time together, a lot of times at a communion or somewhere we've been together, we, we'll tell each other, I love you, and whatever it is. But what do we really mean by that? Jesus says, in John 15:13, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So I want you to think about that the next time you tell somebody that you love them, that what you're really saying or what you should be saying is, I would die in your place. That's what I mean when I tell you I love you. And, and when that first came home to my, to my consciousness, I was pretty cautious about using that, for, that phrase. Uh, am I really willing? And in times of, of an emotional experience together, yeah, probably. 
But what about other times when things aren't going so well in our, our relationships? Am I still willing to just see it all die and just die and disappear and, and go into oblivion so that you can live or exist or arise, whatever that would be? Now this is interesting to me and I, I spent a lot of time actually studying this last point here, bear much fruit. Um, but Anthony says I'm out of time. John 15, verse 8. Here it is. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is what it's going to look like. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. This is how people are going to know you're His disciples. Because your life is fruitful. Fruit is simply that, that thing that is nourishing to other people. But an interesting thing about fruit and what God said about fruit is that it's going to have seeds in it. And this is what sets Christian service apart from just ordinary philanthropy or ordinary, the other word, um, philanthropy is the only one I can come up with, just doing good deeds. A Christian's good works are going to have the seeds of the gospel in it. When God made fruit, He said this, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after His kind, whose seed is in itself. God wants us to produce the kind of fruit that will reproduce itself in other people. And the only way that's possible is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Having the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, it says in Philippians 1. They have seeds in them to propagate and perpetuate itself. It's that effect produced by the individual's life and choices. So that's pretty stern. The Lord Jesus, He's, he's got a pretty serious terms. If you're wanting to be a disciple of Jesus tonight, it's, it's big. But it is enough for the disciple to be as His Master. Was it, who was here last? Here, let's see. Does anybody remember? Can you quote Matthew chapter 10? It's okay. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. I was here last year too, and I can't quote Matthew 10. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If this thing of being a disciple of Jesus and it's not I think somehow I want to tie some things together here thinking about love and, and what God has done for us is discipleship an option? I'm, you've probably heard it phrased different ways can you take Jesus as Savior and not take Jesus as Lord? Is discipleship an option? Let's ask the man that was lifted up out of the miry pit that knows that his sins have been forgiven, that he's been forgiven $5,000 or whatever the number is. Let's ask him if he 
if discipleship is optional. It's not even a question. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to follow Him. So it's kind of a bad question, and yet it, it's out there. It, it's afloat. Can I be saved and not be a disciple? And by, by the Word of God, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can't take Jesus as Savior and reject Him as Lord. So there's some verses there related to that. Because it's enough. The, the disciple is perfectly satisfied if he can just be like Jesus. It's not a question. Do I have to? That's his heart's desire to be like Jesus. These then are the terms of Christian discipleship. They are clear and unequivocal. The writer, Bill MacDonald, realizes that in the act of setting them forth, he has condemned himself as an unprofitable servant. But shall the truth of God be forever suppressed because of the failure of God's people? Is it not true that the message is always greater than the messenger? Is it not proper that God be true and every man a liar? Should we not say with an old worthy, Thy will be done, though in my own undoing? Confessing our past failure, let us courageously face up to the claims of Christ upon us and seek from this moment on to be true disciples of our glorious Lord. Amen. My Master, lead me to Thy door. Pierce this now willing ear once more. Thy bonds of freedom. Let me stay with Thee to toil. Endure. Obey. Amen.